In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The Gospel opens up on what should have been an unforgettable party. While sharing a Sabbath meal with a group of Pharisees and lawyers, Jesus miraculously heals a man with dropsy, a devastating disease that produced an unquenchable thirst without relief. But you'd never have guessed it. The hosts, the eminent religious experts and rulers of the town, were too sullen and obsessed with catching Jesus in some error so that they could condemn him. Their invitation to the Sabbath dinner wasn't genuine. They weren't exactly eager for his company after he had scathingly critiqued their colleagues just a few chapters earlier in the gospel. They wanted to bring Jesus down and, if possible, to do so very publicly. But Jesus is not distracted by their shallow hospitality. He makes an earnest attempt still to persuade them to do better He points out how the liberation of a suffering son of Israel, a suffering neighbor, is in fact a perfect use of the Sabbath celebration, worthy of commemoration and not condemnation. After all, Sabbath meant the consummation of creation about celebrating the fullness of all that God in his goodness had provided through the week. But the joy of gratitude is far from the hearts of the Pharisees. For each of Jesus' attempts to engage them, to draw them out of their skepticism, all that Jesus receives from them in return is silence. This is a dire turn of events. Earlier in the book with the other Pharisees at similar dinners, there was at least some pushback, some argument. Now there's nothing but seething resentment. The Pharisees have departed so far from the posture of debate and persuadability that all they can muster now is non-engagement. They are very, very far away from God in their hearts. And so the emptiness of their silent anger, compared with the fullness of Christ's compassion, sets the stage for the parable that Jesus goes on to tell. While their cold regard of the healing miracle unfolds at the head of the table at the Sabbath supper, Jesus notices that new guests have started to arrive and are clambering over each other to get a good seat near the hosts, the places of honor. Jesus' parable about seats at a feast is not just a matter of decorum or of avoiding boorish behavior at a party. Instead, it reveals the irony that the guests at this Sabbath dinner are climbing over each other to be seated in a place of honor in relation to those 
who are actively rejecting the Messiah of Israel and their God. To be honored by the hosts of this dinner means nothing because they have dishonored the true guest of honor, the Lord of the Sabbath himself. But the point of the parable extends further. Jesus warns all present from seeking honor in general because it doesn't endure in God's kingdom when it comes in its fullness. At the end of all things, which is what all parables are pointing us to, only the honor given by Christ the King will matter. The only honor he gives is to those who humble themselves in this world like he did. Humility alone leads to honor that matters because it is patterned after Christ. Honor that is not rooted in humility like Jesus is worthless. But despite its worthlessness, it remains powerfully tempting and unreliable and deceptive. Honor as the world gives it is fleeting and is as fleeting as it is addictive. Jesus is warning that the pursuit of such empty honor always betrays the one who seeks it, and it always sets them up for a calamitous fall. We see this warning echoed in the prophecy of Jeremiah, who warns the royal family of Judah about this kind of vanity as they rule in what turned out to be the last days of the kingdom before the great captivity. He says, Do not be proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he causes darkness and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains and while you are looking for light. He turns it into the shadow of death and makes it dense darkness. Humble yourselves, sit down, for your rule shall collapse the crown of your glory. This warning addresses the deadly vice of vainglory, which is a habit of seeking reputation from what is not good or true. Vainglory means seeking glory for what is not actually glorious or honorable. It can mean seeking glory for what is not true about us, a reputation that outstrips the content of our character. The inflation of our image before others is a constant temptation, and it has been made so easy in our time to craft an image of ourselves that we present to others that is always only partially real. But vainglory, the kind of glory Jesus is warning against, is a lot like drinking salt water when thirsty. What we really want, what we really want, is to be known completely and loved completely. Yet the prospect, or maybe for some of us the traumatic memory of being known and rejected, prevents us from the vulnerability of authentic relationship 
from which we would learn true things about ourselves. So we settle for a phantom love, empty words of acclaim given to the fragment of ourselves we present to others, through which we try with diminishing success to draw the love we really want and that we really need. But we also try to do this with God and with our brethren in the church. And that is why, if we will stop to think about it, every liturgy has to begin with the terror of being known. We can believe we're faking it everywhere else, but here in the Mass, we start by saying, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires are known, and from whom no secrets are hid. We confess together every Sunday that we have nowhere to hide from the sight of the God who loves us and has brought us here, along with all the saints and all the angels. This would be unbearable were it not for what happens next. In that state of exposure, we are brought in with love by God and his church. The truth, this truth of being brought in is why in his epistle, St. Paul stresses so much and calls the Ephesians to model the humility and patience required to draw in with gentleness those who need to be welcomed into their healing. Because the church is a place of encounter, of being met, and of being known, it must always embody the graciousness of the God who always welcomes the sinner. Thus, St. Paul says, quote, Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, end quote. The church is always called to lowliness and gentleness, the posture of non-anxiously waiting without pretense, the posture of genuine welcome for the newcomer and the seeker. The church is always called to patience with the goal of unity, the exercise of suffering for one another, of keeping the door open for each other as much as possible to the end that all might remain present and be saved. The alternative to this graciousness is the attitude of the Pharisee, silent, conceiving, and skeptical, waiting for the other to make a mistake and ready to condemn it. And we always have before us these two options. We embody Christ's church, the true church, insofar as we, like our Lord, welcome the sinner to be healed. And we deny and reject Christ insofar as we, like the Pharisee, see others as objects to prop up our own sense of self-righteousness. 
the life of the church and our life in it is a gift. A gift that was given to us when we were the unlikeliest of recipients. All that we have, we have received by the unmerited goodwill of God in Christ. All that is meaningful in our life is grace. So we pray in the collect today for the grace of God to prevent, which means to go before us. And we pray that the grace of God would follow us. And in every liturgy, that prayer is answered. We come here and are entirely known and entirely welcomed by God. Grace goes ahead of us, prepares the way for us, gives us a place to come to confess our sins, to be known entirely and to receive the healing that we want more than anything else. Grace follows us. It nudges us forward when vainglory would try to pull us to the side, offering an empty promise of easy honor, of easy peace, without the sacrifice of integrity and character. Grace pushes us forward to the place where the truth of real glory is to be actually found and actually known. It puts us on our knees in front of the altar, where if we'll look up, we will see Christ crucified, and then above that, Christ glorified. There, in that vulnerable place, in that humble posture, on our knees, there we begin to be exalted. Because even though we are not worthy to receive the crumbs from under God's table, we find we're given the body of Jesus himself. And as we go to receive him, we find that we are the ones who are received. Remember the words of our Lord. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.